out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician and songwriter David Jenkins, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. In the band, the um, the Motion. So you're going to find out more about them and his life in music, creativity, and much, much more. So every after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the musical awakening. Anyway, David, it's over to you. Oh, it would have to be the Beatles. I mean, I grew up um, in a household that my, neither of my parents were musicians. They were both involved in uh, the th- acting and the theater world, but they both loved music. And my earliest memories... Um, other than hearing the radio or whatever, were um, by the time we settled out here in um, California, which would be 1970, um, my folks uh, were in a touring company of a Broadway show. Yeah. And then uh, their marriage ended, but I went back and forth for a little while between Los Angeles and San Francisco, where my father moved to. And so I always remember listening to records in either my mother's apartment or my father's place and um you know it was of the time they both had beatles records and my mom um also had a mixture of everything from barbara streisand to bob dylan and cast albums and show tunes and stuff but the beatles would definitely have been my formative musical thing and i didn't really have any knowledge of them existing or not just that i liked these records and i knew them which yeah. at the time were Starch and Pepper, Revolver, and uh, Abbey Road were the three that my mom had. And um, that was my beginning of getting interested in music as a active listener. Yes. Well, that's interesting because um, I, I suppose I'd slightly caught a few of the Beatles films when I was very young. And obviously anything on telly at that time was was very, it felt very precious because we only had three channels in this country. And and if, some, and if something was on, it was on and it was gone and it would be never seen again. So those Beatles films were very good. But I had a brother who was a bit older than me, seven years. And in the kind of early 70s, he started getting a record collection. He was very into prog rock, you know, right. like, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barker, James Hobbs. Mm-hmm. But he also had two other albums um, which had a huge influence, which was the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, and also Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. But I was okay. mesmerized by both of these records because um, obviously he said, do not go into my room and play my record. So I obviously <laughs> sneaked into yeah, his room. Yeah. And um, yeah. would put these on, you know, and at the time, you know, you forget that the the Beatles would have only broken up about three years before, you know, but right. they, that was like another whole other world, wasn't it? You know, when a, you know, a, a previous decade when you're young feels like, well, that's just very old, yeah. isn't it? But um, I was mesmerized with the, yeah, the the lyrics and the kind of like the imagery of the Beatles, um, Sergeant Pepper. And there was a song on it, which I was, I just still love is Good Morning, which was on side two. And I just remember that rhythm and those, that narrative that runs through. It's just incredible, really, to a young person. That's Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's so um, at that time, you know, I'm absorbing those records and then i listen to whatever's on the radio where if I, you know my mom learned how to drive when we moved out here so i'd go in the car with her to run her errands my you know i spent a lot of time hanging out 
um, with my folks, you know, my father eventually remarried and moved back down to Los Angeles. And I would just always be going around with them after school or when they were doing their things or, you know, so I, I heard a lot of music in the car, I think, but I also, I didn't, I didn't start buying my own records until I was a bit older. Um, but they knew that I was into it. So I would, there would occasionally be presents for holidays or birthday of an album or a single. And then I think, you know, around that time, probably as I got a little bit older, besides my, sorry, besides my Beatles obsession, um, I would, uh, just start reading about other bands in reading articles or books about them. I would discover other groups. And then, you know, that's kind of uh, not long after that. Of course, I'd already had a friendship with one of my future bandmates. And then when our third, uh, third one came along, we all were sort of mutually excited about everything going on with music, but we all have the common language of being initially big Beatles fans. Yes. So, that's and I was going but, to say, with your parents, just just going back slightly with your parents. So were mm -hmm. they both quite bohemian then, kind of artistic, kind of bohemian types? Yeah, I mean, my folks, my my at the time, my mom was still pursuing an acting career, and my father was working as an actor. My mom also worked in various capacities as a production assistant. Um, worked um, before my time. Uh, worked briefly uh, for uh, a company called Grosscourt which was Albert Grossman and John Court. They managed Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary and Odetta. My mom worked for them, I think around 1963, 64, for a brief spell, probably why mm -hmm. we had some Bob Dylan, Odetta and Peter, Paul and Mary records that were promos in my mom's collection. Yes. Um, and uh, my folks were just, yeah, they, all their friends in New York were also aspiring actors and writers and, you know, they, they knew some musicians as well. And then um, uh, I'm actually uh, a, a woman that my mom went to high school with, who I've learned about over the years, and they're still in touch, is a singer named Martha Velez, who made a couple of really cool records in the 70s and who was part of the Woodstock community. So my mom always had an appreciation for music and um, has a nice singing voice. My father had a lovely singing voice as well, but music was more my thing mm. for it acting and the other stuff my mother ended up having a very long career as a casting director for feature films um so i grew up in show business but the music thing was more of my thing yes. and the other stuff was but that you know the, it's all sort of interrelated um and then so as far as um my friends and the band my my initial friendship with my down the street neighbor, Stephen Wolfson, who's the main songwriter and lead singer in the motion. Um, Stephen's um, parents just had sort of regular, his mom ran a family business that distributed um, uh, party picks and swizzle sticks and sort of uh, cocktail accessories. And his, uh, his father had been a, an attorney, but his um, grandfather had been a Hollywood screenwriter and so he was always interested in writing, I think, from an early age. The musical thing, sort of, we were both, you know, met each other when we were like seven or eight years old. So we both discovered a lot of things together when a few years passed and we were just, you know, obsessed with music and, you know, everything related to, you know, that time in popular culture. Obviously, you know, whatever was on the radio and television, of course, movies were a big thing for us, too. So we were all 
the year that we met our third bandmate, Paul, Star Wars had come out. We were all obsessed with that as well. Um, but Paul Riopel, who's the band's lead guitarist, um, Paul had a sister who moved downstairs for me and my mom in 1977. And so I saw this kid who was a couple years older hanging out. It's like, oh, blah, blah. so, you know, we met down on the street or in the driveway or whatever, discovered that we were all into the same stuff. But his father, Paul's dad, that is, um, was a performing musician. He was a songwriter and record maker. His name was Jerry Riopel. And Jerry had had a very interesting career in the 60s. As we later found out, he had done everything from being a side, side man for artists to becoming a session musician and a producer, worked with Phil Spector, signed uh, as a writer to A&M, had a studio group. Like he did every job you could do in the music business until he decided to start making his own records. Um, and so Paul grew up kind of seeing all of that for up, you know, up close, like going to a recording studio, going to concerts, watching things be created, very much, you know, seeing the process unfold. So by the time we all met, you know, he had a bit more knowledge than we did, but we all had a mutual enthusiasm. We all ironically all played the drums. Um, and then once we got together, realizing that something had to happen um, after some initial forays into just singing along to Beatles records with tennis rackets to impress our friends, um, we had to make the leap and they learned how to play guitar. And then I learned how to play the bass guitar and we kind of rotated instruments. So this takes us up to maybe like 79 we're like working in the garage and eventually getting it together to have folks over play concerts in our backyard but just still the three of us switching instruments and mostly learning on the job writing our own material we weren't very good at learning other people's songs yes. as much as we loved it we could not begin to figure out how we would play a Beatles song or something like that but that was kind of the explosion for us is that we had an in-house coach or guide to kind of check in on us and now and then and see where we were headed so jerry was very helpful in that regard yes god that's a very good bit of mentoring just on that theater front i know i'm a bit obsessed with it because you had those kind of very experimental 60s you know theater companies there was the coquettes there was living theater was it bread and was it bread and butter theater company i think that was on the west coast i mean you know there was a lot of performance artists and some wild stuff did your mm -hmm. parents kind of did brush against that or was that a quite different I mean, my folks definitely knew they were you know they were both um my mom had me relatively young i mean my mother only just turned 80 this past spring so she was in her 20s and my dad was a few years older but they were very much in the mix with you know the people that they knew socially just on on the scene in new york would be like you know dustin hoffman and um elliot gould and people like that of course around elliot was married to barbara streisand years later my mom ended up working for her <laughs> like out here <laughs> in los angeles for a while um so yeah they knew i mean they were friends with people who were you know on you know the scene like my folks both had uh tiny acting gigs in a movie um called Alex in Wonderland, directed by Paul Mazursky. Many years later, we would run, my dad and I would see Paul all the time out here in LA at the Farmer's Market, which is a collection of little kiosks and stands uh, near where I live. And um, Paul would always be holding court. So like decades later, I sort of reacquainted myself with some of the people from my father and mother's early days, you know, before I was really 
on the scene. So they always kept, you know, connected to that time in their lives. I mean, regardless of where they're, you know, obviously most, a lot of actors move out to California in the seventies because this is where the work was and television was kind of where a lot of people's income yeah. was happening. So that's, you know, what, you know, the play brought them out here, but the TV work kept my dad here. And then my mom was working, doing various production and assisting jobs and it kind of put acting on the back burner for herself. And then she ended up, like I said, getting a job working for Barbara Streisand and John Peters on the uh, remake of A Star is Born with Barbara and Chris Christopherson. She worked as an assistant to them, to, to John and Barbara. And at the end of that process, the director of that film enjoyed working with my mom and said, you know, I need your help. We're going to, I'm going to do this picture. I need someone that can look at actors and help me sort through stuff. So she took that job, much to John and Barbara's displeasure. Um, and then uh, she um, started working, assisting the casting person on this next movie. And then that led to her career doing casting herself. And she did that just until a couple of years ago. So I grew up going to movie sets and TV shoots and watching plays staged. I've always been connected to that part of performing. But like I said, you know, like the musical thing was around and an appreciation of it. But, yes. I, you know, my, my mom had a guitar and it taught herself some chords, I think, way back when. But I didn't, you know, I got more use out of it than she did. But she certainly still loved music. She still does. And my father always did as well. But, um, you know, I didn't have something like my bandmate, Paul, where there was direct, you know, there's a guy in the house who's writing a song and making a demo and you're going to go watch him record it. And he's going to have, you know, real people playing. And I mean, it's a, that was a huge deal for us. And also the kind of, like I said, at this point, you know, we're all in our early teens and we're starting to get together. So you can cast your memory back to new technology at the time. Paul and his dad would sometimes do joint ventures and buy equipment together because Paul had had a, a bit of a career as a young uh, actor doing some TV commercials and and, tele and television work. So the money that he made from that, they put aside for him, but he was allowed to spend it occasionally on things he wanted, like they wanted to get, um, they were the first people I knew that had a VCR and could record. So we would endlessly watch what had been on Saturday Night Live like the night before. So all that great early, you know, first few years of Saturday Night Live when the musical guests were incredible, mm. we could watch those performances over and over again long before you had anything where you could look up, you know, clips. And one of the other things that was a huge thing for us just as a performance thing was uh, Paul's dad took us to see The Kids Are All Right here in Los Angeles when it premiered at the uh, Cinerama Dome which was amazing to only have had at that point, like I knew about the who they made this record, Tommy, and I knew the song pinball wizard, and I didn't know much else about them, but then to watch the kids are all right. All of us were there. It was like, what is going on here? It's incredible. <laughs> and then not long after there was a local, um, it may have just been California based, but there was a cable on demand service called on TV. And it was like, you bought a decoder box and put it on your TV set and programming would come through it. And it was literally that simple. You paid a fee and they installed this thing. And they showed what was probably not quite authorized, some version or a bootleg version of the kids are all right on their service. Paul recorded it. And then I think every day for the next year, we would go over to his house after school 
and just watch the kids are all right and watch the who performing. It's like, that's like, we got to learn how to do more of that. So as a result, our little trio, which at that time we were probably called the last chance band, yes. you know, we would run these concerts in our backyard and we would have, you know, smoke, you know, fog effects, you know, we'd have attempted smashing of things. We just, we were, we were obsessed with the who's performance thing. And then um, Jerry uh, and Paul bought a initial four track cassette Tascam Porta Studio, which was like a revolutionary thing. Previously then the best, most home recording musicians might have, you know, if you had a bit of money, you could have like a two track or four track open reel recorder, but um, you still needed a mixing board and whatnot. So the Porta Studios were, you know, self-contained four track unit that recorded on a regular cassette. Um, the mixing board was built in. You just could plug directly into it with your instrument or you plug a microphone into it. So we had a very elaborate setup with a microphone and another cassette recorder with a microphone set up to record drums and then put all the instruments directly into the mixer. And we made a really polished demo tape for the time. I mean, we were 13 years old. Yeah. That, that one's not on Spotify. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, sadly, it's just the quality. I mean, actually, some of it is pretty good as far as the playing and singing, especially for our age. But the quality of what we have left is pretty rough. Like it wouldn't really sound so good up on a streaming site. But we hope someday to find the original version of it. Yes. But what we did is, um, you know, we again, because it was just the times and we didn't know better. We finished up making these recordings and then we copied some cassettes and made a little label and we just sent them out to. Um, to clubs, you know, in Los Angeles. So we sent a tape to this health food restaurant called the Natural Fudge Company. And we sent one to the Troubadour and to the Whiskey to send it to places like that. Just, you know, I mean, that's what you did, right? Like, or we thought that's how you did it. Yes. And we still didn't have a full-time drummer. We just, the three of us were taking turns. So two things happened. We got um, a gig at this health food restaurant and uh, we thought, well, we should really get a drummer. So Stephen went to a school a very cool uh, progressive private school called Newbridge. And there was an older guy named Eric Satzman, who was a drummer. And Stephen said, hey, would you want to get together and play? So it's like, kind of like, you know, at that, at that point in your life, like a year or two difference is a big deal when you're 13, 14 years old. But he was cool. He was into it. So this huge drum kit showed up and, you know, we started rehearsing with him. So we played this restaurant, and, you know, packed it with our friends and family. Then we got a proper gig at the Troubadour. And that was pretty funny because our folks, you know, had to drive us there and, you know, help us in with our gear. But Paul's mom, Naomi, had worked for a decade at the Troubadour during its height, like mid 60s to mid 70s. She was one of the main waitresses there. And she actually is the waitress with the famous John Lennon incident of being kicked out of the club for heckling and all that. She had many classic moments, you know, for a decade of working at that place. And I think that's might have um, that might have been just a little bit of not deja vu, but a little full circle. It's like you used to work here and bring your son with you because, you know, you did, couldn't afford a sitter. So you just had him hang out at the club at night. Now he's on stage with his buddies playing music. It was a pretty, pretty interesting moment. And again, yes. a, really good, a really good thing for us to be able to be in that position. You know, the Troubadour, of course, still is a legendary place and everybody knows about the old days and, you know, Elton John's first performance in the States and Eagles, Linda Ronsat, all that stuff. But, you know, which we did not really know anything about so much when we were kids yet, but we just knew that this was a place we'd heard about. And it was like, it was a real place. You know, we played 
in our garages and our backyards. Like we'd done stuff where we would invite our friends to come and see us. And um, we've put pictures of this recently up on our social media so we can finally share that more with people. But the Troubadour was a really big deal. And so now we had a drummer. And so we attempted to do some more demo recording. And then um, said drummer, Eric, had to um, make it, you know, he was going away to college. And we'd also added a keyboard player at that time, a kid named Eric Suttleson, who I'd met at my middle school. And so we needed another drummer. So when school started for Stephen, he asked if anybody played drums in the class. And this kid, you know, with glasses and tall, you know, long arms, raised his hand and said, I play the drums. We, you know, went up to his house. And that's where we met Ryland Allison, who's became, you know, the drummer for the motion. Yes. And Ryland's family connections were interesting too because Ryland's mother and his uh, stepfather were television producers and did tons I mean ended up doing tons of shows like Blossom and uh, whatnot they had a very successful career doing TV Ryland's father was a guy named Keith Allison who had been like a LA music scene session guy he'd come from Texas with Michael Nesmith and that whole crew in the mid 60s came out to LA and Keith started working as a session guy and had his own career and then joined Paul Revere and the Raiders and had a long run with them. So again, Ryland grew up totally immersed with music around all the time and kind of in a show business family as well. But music was his thing. And of course, he had his dad, you know, dragging him along to things. So Ryland has many classic tales of growing up, you know, playing Keith Moon's drum kit and hanging out with all these guys. His dad and Ringo were very good friends for years. So Sort of interesting thing. And funnily enough, I didn't know some of this. We knew when we were kids, but I did not know till relatively recently some of the escapades in terms of, you know, Ringo showing him stuff on the drums and him getting sort of firsthand, you know, instruction. It's like, wow, I've known you since we were teenagers and only now are you telling me about you playing Ringo's drum kit in his house? It goes, well, you know, it's just that's, you know, that's what it was. It's just like hanging out with your dad's friends. Yes. My God, that's um, amazing. You know, so. The funny thing is, is like all of this, though, is in almost complete isolation and that we really did not know any other people in bands, partly because of our age. You know, I knew some other people at school. We all did like other people that played musical instruments or that were stuff like Stephen and Ryland went to this private school together, Newbridge, an older kid um, named Lenny played guitar, who was, uh, you know, getting a group together. And that was Lenny Kravitz. But at that time, he was just an older kid who was like talking a big game about all his plans and dreams or whatever. And it's like, OK. So, <laughs> you know, yes, we did sort of jam together once in the uh, uh, recreation room at their school as we, rehearsed, as we rehearsed for a student carnival. But I can't say that anybody had any idea of anything, you know, until much later when he was going around town doing his Romeo Blue character and then eventually, you know, became Lenny Kravitz. So which yes. is kind of funny side note but we again we really didn't know other musicians so we were very insular in that regard we really just kind of did our own thing we mostly concentrated on original songs like i said Stephen was the primary writer Casey paul would help him with a song or we'd like jam on something but Stephen was a very uh, proficient songwriter and always coming up with more material and more ideas and so the demo tape that you know pat posted two weeks ago what happened there was 
we realized that we wanted to do something proper, like make a real recording of us. At this point, the keyboard player had left because he was more interested in playing baseball at school and didn't really want to focus on music. So we had um, we had our opportunity to like, Jerry's going to take us into a studio. We're going to record drums for real. You know, more like one mic or, you know, like try and make it sound okay with, you know, a cassette recorder. It's like we're going to really record at a proper studio. And then um, you just kept rehearsing and working on these songs and working on stuff. Then Stephen and his sister were in an accident. They were in a car that was hit by a bus, which was thankfully not anywhere near as terrible as it could have been. But mm. it put us off recording for a while since his arm was in a cast and couldn't really play guitar easily. But we just spent more time working on the songs. We actually had a very funny moment. I guess it could only happen in L.A. We were all Christmas shopping at a big mall out here called the Beverly Center. And uh, we saw John Entwistle uh, with some shopping bags, like doing his Christmas shopping. We were flabbergasted that a guy from The Who was in LA and we introduced ourselves. He couldn't have been nicer. I think he signed Stephen's cast, offered us, you know, a little bit of encouragement. It was a big moment. And, um, you know, eventually Stephen got better, hand out of the cast. And then we went that following summer in 83 to a studio in Westwood, um, a little place called Track Recording that a friend of Jerry's owned and uh, Jerry took us in there and we were just going to record, you know, our songs like with guide vocals and scratch guitars and do the drums. Um, and Ryland's folks came down to listen and were so impressed with how it sounded. They just asked Jerry, like, how many days would you need here to get it really done properly? And he goes like, probably, you know, a couple, three, four days. They're like, let's do it. So they paid for the studio time. And so we could stay there for the week and really make, What's one of the reasons the tape was so polished is that we had a lot of time to really work on it and we were already prepared. So then we had our very professional, you know, demo. And at that point, it was kind of weird. It was like we'd felt like we'd already really accomplished something just by doing this. But then, you know, some guy came by that knew the guy at the studio and said, like, you know, I'd like to take this and like try and pitch it to my friends. I want to start a, a label for rock bands at Motown and you guys could be the first band. It's like we'd hear all these things, but it's like even with connections and the industry it's like we didn't really know what to do with any of it we were also all still in high school yes. you know so it's not like there was really an option for like give it all up and let's just like get out on the road it was kind of like well we'll keep playing gigs at clubs and you know telling our friends that we have a tape and stuff i i think one one regret from that time is that we didn't really have the wherewithal to manufacture cassettes or or, or a seven inch piece of vinyl which would, would have been the only options at the time and, and kind of expensive for us then too. So we just had, we would make, you know, dub off copies of our demo and give them to friends and they would have it. But, you know, that's the only way we could get the music out there. Yes. Do you, I mean, during that period, they, you know, just going back slightly, you know, there was obviously the slightly classic rock period of the early to mid seventies with, you know, Frampton comes live, right. you know, lots Frampton of kind of great Boston yeah. and there was cheap trick. And then the, you know, what did punk do to you guys? And, and that kind of post-punk period with people like Elvis Costello and, and, well, Nicolo I mean, and, and Joe Jackson and people like that. You know, it's funny because I, I've talk, I talk about this all the time with older friends and, and younger friends, too. You know, punk rock, I think, generationally and geographically means very different things to a lot of people. You know, people that grew up here in L.A., the, the Los Angeles punk scene, which, you know, some of us were kind of into and knew some of those bands. And, you know, I, actually a pivotal thing for Stephen and I when we were, I think, both 13, his older brother, David, took us uh, end of 1980, almost 
to, between Christmas and New Year's, I think, we went to the Whiskey A Go Go uh, not long before it closed up um, uh, to see X, who were a huge Los Angeles band. And really, you know, everyone will still to this day attest that they were musically kind of miles above a lot of the L.A. punk scene was more slashing chords, angular, like, you know, they were they had energy and a lot of power, but they had a lot of ability and they had interesting songs and harmonies. And that made a big impression on him and I, for sure. Um, I think as far as the other bands that you mentioned, you know, we all were into what was happening in music at that time. So we were certainly into Elvis Costello and the police and Joe Jackson and all that kind of stuff. And then sort of because of our age and where we were, we're still like we weren't necessarily all going out to see a lot of shows or see as many gigs as we could have or should have. But, you know, we also had this other thing musically where Paul's father, Jerry, was making records and doing shows and had this huge, you know, regional success in Arizona due to radio plays. So we would go watch him do gigs up close, like go to a big venue and like see a sound check and see how all of it worked and then kind of learn from that and put it back into just trying to do a better job of what, of what we were doing. But what was interesting too, is that musically, the other thing that was really changing at the time was that, you know, you had a lot more kind of technology became more available to people. So, you know, it was a big deal. One Christmas, Ryland got a, you know, an Oberheim synthesizer for a present. And that was a great sound that we wanted to explore, like maybe having a keyboard player again. And then you're hearing different kinds of things in music, like the bands that you mentioned, but also just, pop music in general in the early 80s there's a whole lot of other stuff happening it's like you've got all the electronic stuff coming over which we were into as well you know all of us were into those bands whether it was you know the kind of shift where like you said you know joe jackson elvis Costello jam like a lot of english groups they went through changes some of them break up it's like paul weller's not in the jam anymore he's got this new band with this guy like the Style Council, for example, was yes. a huge band for me and Steven. We were big fans. We actually saw their only U.S. gig or one of their only U.S. gigs uh, here in Los Angeles, which was a huge thing for us because at that point, that's kind of where we're like heading to a different place musically, I think. And that's actually the interesting thing about this time is that so circa 1984, you know, um steven's finishing up school um paul had already graduated high school rylan and i still had another year to go um we did this really cool gig playing out in westwood um at the federal building to entertain the uh, olympic athletes which was like playing on this huge stage and uh, there's video of it it was great fun we made a new recording kind of using new technology we were in jerry's home studio and rylan actually just programmed a drum machine with different drum samples and didn't play a drum kit, but just played, you know, a keyboard with drum sounds. And he and Jerry worked together on that. And, uh, you know, Stephen had a song that was, um, you know, something we wanted to record, but um, it's like, we were sort of seeing the change and stuff. It's like, here we were not all playing together at the same time, but just trying to craft a little demo track or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And it was just, you know, there's also changes coming up too. It's like Paul um, ended up, not in the group after a little while because he was going through kind of some life changes like you know figuring out what's next for him as far as you know you're done with school and it's like what are you going to do you know because i don't think there was ever an option for us to think of the band as being something we could pursue as a way to make a living plus steven had already you know forged a path to going to getting into going to university and getting a degree 
then Ryland went to Cal Arts, which is a very well-known um, school out here in in Los Angeles um, that caters to creative types and wants to you know put them on a path. So he was exploring composition and learning about orchestration, learning about how to do you know more music stuff. And Stephen and I ended up um, you know staying together and having two other bands after sort of this initial disbanding of the motion per se. But it's also just the times, you know, it's like everybody's sort of like, there's all this new stuff going around. There's new sounds, yes. there's new ways of things. And that was a big thing for us. I think Stephen and I maybe had the opportunity to stay working together for the next four or five years because we both shared a lot of interests musically. And so we just worked with other people that we knew through school. In my case, I found us a keyboard player and a drummer um, that I'd known for years. And we just did, you know, another band for a couple of years called man on fire and then that went away and then we did another band called 10 feet tall and then steven met um a singer songwriter uh and wanted to just work as like a folk duo and that kind of was the end of our time working together this takes us up to about 89 90 mm. and we're still remaining friends i mean there was never never a period where we weren't friends with each other it was just the music thing had gone away but the friendship never did and i'd always said in hindsight that the friendship was the reason the band came about in the first place so the friendship was going to remain even if the band did but then periodically there would be get-togethers for you know the hell of it or someone's birthday or whatnot and then the two things that really led to us reuniting were i started making a record of my own uh, almost 20 years ago actually a little bit longer and as a surprise i invited Stephen, paul and ryland without telling anybody what I wanted them to do just, hey, come to the studio on this day. It's like, I want you to do something with me. So all of them showed up, um, as did um, Paul's parents. And uh, we had a reunion, which was great fun. We recorded a very old song uh, from our initial childhood demos and just had a great day hanging out. And then I think we talked about doing a gig for someone's birthday. It might have been Paul's birthday. So we did that. And then it was basically like re- integrating into being in a band together but it took a little while to like start it back up again and kind of get into the mindset of what are we doing like are we trying to relive our childhood or are we trying to be who we are at this age and so you know two things happened we did some of that and then uh paul's dad was doing uh return to his big new year's eve gigs in uh, arizona at the celebrity theater which is like a three thousand seat in the round venue that's been there since the 60s and he uh, invited us to open up for him so we had a gig on new year's eve where we played to a sold out crowd and most of them were completely unaware of us i mean they maybe knew that jerry's son had a band or something but it was great to play to basically a bunch of strangers although all of steven's family came out as did uh my mom and um a bunch of our pals i mean it was a great night and after that we decided hey let's make a record so we started making a record with a couple friends of ours yes. and then that's the whatever what became whatever pleases you. And at the time, Ryland was about to become a father. So he sort of ducked out after the initial tracking and had to focus on his kid coming. And then, you know, we finished up the record um, and didn't really know what to do as far as promoting it. And again, it's funny to think how things shift. Like now, you know, in 2023, here we are getting people interested talking about us as a band that used to be and exists again but people can hear our 40 year old demo tape of our teenage years 
as well as the record we made 14 years ago. And it's just all easily found at various streaming sites. But in 2009, the conversation was, well, are we going to press up CDs? And then, you know, vinyl is so expensive. And I don't know, or should we make, it was like, we didn't really know quite what to do because also, again, at that point in your life, everybody is locked into some kind of job or career. A couple of people have family obligations. It's like, you can't really just drop everything and start being a group again, other than you can get together and play for fun. So that took us a little bit of time to figure out. We did a couple of gigs where we'd have different guests. We had a different drummer for a little bit because Ryland couldn't do it. And then once that all got worked out and realized like, let's just have fun again and not worry about anything else. That's kind of where it came back. And that's where we are today is that when we do a show, it's a lot of old friends and family, but we've got new friends and new fans as well. And doing something like this makes perfect sense because here's you, here, here are you, you know, thousands of miles away, just seeing a post about something from someone that you're connected with through something else. You go, oh, this is interesting. And you listen to it and you're like, well, this is cool. It's like, well, what about this? Or like, where, where does this fit into everything? You know? Yes. And that's kind of, I think one of the things that's happened, obviously, you know, social media has infiltrated every aspect of our lives. And in the best sense, we're connected here through this link up, having a chat about something that you're curious about. And I'm giving you the story, you know, with all these details that you would never have known any other way because there's not, no one's going to write an article or publish a book on, you know, a group from LA that never, you know, went anywhere in <laughs> LA, but it ties into all these other things of like, you know, there's always like, we would be very fascinated to read about some group, you know, from, you know, Manchester in 1966 that were cut two singles and then everybody just went back to their job, you know, at the factory. Like we would be curious about like, oh, that was such a good song. It's like, what happened? It's like, oh, you know, we couldn't really get anything going. Yes. And I kind of feel like we had a little bit of a version of that with sort of being a little bit of a big fish in a, in a, in a, in a small pond, meaning our little section of Los Angeles. LA was teeming with tons of stuff, but it's like, we were just in our little world. We only knew like, you know, the stuff we knew, we didn't know other bands or really, you know, network with people or anything like that. We just kind of did our own thing. And so, you know, funnily enough, um, some of the musicians from our time, like from our scene, gone on to great success. I, you know, one of my high school mates was Rami Jaffe, who's been in the Foo Fighters for years. And prior to that was in the Wallflowers. And he's still a motion fan, you know. Our old friend Josh, who was one of the guys that started the band Warrant, you know, he actually filled it and played guitar with us a couple of years back. It's just kind of funny. It's like how it all comes in a big circle and people's lives go in different directions. But it's like they can have a commonality of something that they liked when they were a kid. And then they find a way to, you know, re, you know, reconnect with it. Yes. It's it a, doesn't it, mean it, this doesn't mean we're getting a slot opening up for the Foo Fighters or anything, but it's nice. <laughs> No, it would but be, I think it wouldn't be crazy if Rami played our demo for those guys. No, but it's interesting because I think there is a sense of I don't know archiving, but there's also a sense of looking back at a scene, not necessarily with rose-tinted sunglasses, but sometimes thinking actually that was quite interesting. Things because you you know for a long time you know the '60s had this great got the '60s. If only we were born in the '60s, the '70s right. got a bit of a bad deal, and then people are going actually the '70s were quite good, and then rejigged it a bit in the 80s there was a certain narrative with the 80s and then suddenly right. there's been like digging down and going actually 
because I found that people would talk about the 80s and I thought that's not my 80s at all I was into right. indie pop I was into the Smiths and all these yeah. jingly jangly bands and then you know there's been lots of books that started coming out about all these scenes and they get very specific because you talk about bands who didn't last long there was a film that was made last year on a band called Rima Rima who only lasted for eight months and put out one EP and someone made a film about them because right. it was kind of a fascinating story and you know when yeah. you see the film you realize there's quite a lot but that was the first band that got signed to 4AD records all the members oh. kind of went on to other things there was right. a, and, and the film also mentions this guy called James Elliott who makes perfume and he has a sort of a neuro neuro um, thing that goes on that means that when he hears noise it kind of create you know he can synesthesia synesthesia yes he yeah. has that so he's made a perfume about from this this band's record called rima rima and oh, wow. and and so there's this kind of again you know from this nothing almost nothing comes this kind of like amazing history and you just yeah. unpack it and unpack it and then you you watch this fascinating film about a band that basically probably only sold 500 EPs but then right. they found you know they found other bits and pieces they put together sure. a compilation they've even well, managed that's to... the beauty of it is that they you know you made something of course we've seen other examples of this with you know greater or longer reaching impact but you know one of the other things that's funny too and again it's occupational hazard of growing up in Los Angeles and being around certain things and scenes where you just end up meeting people and I'm an out, outgoing personality and I like chatting with people you know I went um uh I, w I went every Tuesday night uh, in the early 90s here in Los Angeles to a club in Hollywood called Raji's, which was in the bottom of this dilapidated hotel. And it's just a place where bands played. And they, yes, there's a big famous picture of Nirvana playing there and all that. But there was a band that played there uh, every Tuesday night for almost two years called the Continental Drifters that was at different points, several, you know, people from other bands, people from the Dream Syndicate, the DBs, the Bangles, Cowsills. They all became and still are very good friends. And so all these years later, like a parallel world where we were, you know, bands that we grew up listening to or looking at, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, I love this band or so it's like, I'd love to meet so-and-so or it'd be so cool to do a gig. It's like, I've become friends with all these people over the years, just in the most roundabout ways. And, you know, that they are sort of intrigued about like, oh, my God, I, I saw this thing of your old band. It's so cute. Like, you guys are jumping around with your, you know, smoke bombs going off or whatever. Like, I would have, you know, couldn't even have dreamt about having that conversation with somebody like that back then because we just didn't know any of those people. Now that, like, enough time has shifted and you're sort of friends with people in a different way. And, again, because of, like, people can look back, like you said, someone might talk about the 80s in a pejorative, like, oh, well, you know, the 80s are like, well, that's not what I remember. Or it's like... There are all these cool bands and all this cool stuff. And I think that it's also the difference. I, I suppose that one another thing that the internet has done has been a bit of a leveler and that people used to look at things. that's like, oh, well, it's like a big popular success. Like, you know, it, one thing about 80s bands that had big hits, you know, that really made an impact is that back then it wasn't just, you know, the radio and the record sales. It's like MTV was a huge thing for all of us, too. We all watched it all the time. But it's like you were you couldn't escape it. So it's like even a non-musical person that just loves music as a thing to put on in the background while they're doing the dishes or whatever. It's like they would know the hook and the drum beat the, the ever to these songs because they were everywhere. It's like it wasn't just like you heard it once. It was sort of like, you know, everyone's air drumming to Tears for Fears or whatever it is. It's like things were huge 
records in a different way than maybe they would have been in the 50s, 60s, or 70s because of the visual component. But my point yeah. is, is that I think there's a lot about the 80s that people genuinely love, even with people looking at, you know, every era has its excess and its cliches and it's like, oh, that band or whatever. And some people are just naturally dissenters or, um, you know, contrarians. It's like they can't love anything that's popular or they can't allow themselves to believe that anything that's that popular is that good. I, I encounter this all the time with people who always want to, you know, have the edge and know about, you know, oh, well, this is the cool thing. And like, you're just into the whatever. But it's like, I know about the real thing. It's like, you know what? It's all valid. And if somebody enjoys <laughs> it, it's also just one of those things that's like bands themselves change. You know, it's like if you go to see Depeche Mode now, Martin Gore is playing guitar and rocking out and there's a drummer with a huge kit. It's like, these aren't like four guys standing behind, like looking like craft work. You know, it's totally different, but it's like their music changed. Their audience still supports it. Obviously they're still very popular. I'm not, we didn't have anything to do with them other than we were fans of what they did, but it's like, there's always going to be a place for two guitars, bass, drums, and people singing and making music in that style. Yes. I think there's going to be obviously a whole new world where somebody can just do a show with modern technology if they are communicating something and bringing it to people in a way that they can relate to it and they can respond to it, then, you know, they don't need to do what's been done before, or they can just take elements of it. And that's kind of what has happened now for a lot of things. It's like people can now appreciate what goes on on multiple levels. It's not sort of like, Oh, you're one of those guys, like you're into techno music, or it's like, Oh, you're just an old dude who wants to get stoned and listen to 10 minute guitar solos. It's like, you know, both things can coexist. Sometimes they can even inter, you know, interrelate, you know, collaborate or cross over into things where it's like you would not expect certain things to happen musically. It's just that people are open to it. I mean, I'm tickled. We all are that anybody would be interested in something from our childhood that you know we look at back fondly because we were the people that did it, and it's what helped get us to the next phase. But somebody coming at it fresh from like, wow, this is you guys at 16. Oh, this is really cool. You know, and we want them to listen to the record we made in our 40s, of course, and we're going to make new music. We're going to actually do a recording session next weekend at Ryland's home studio and um, do a brand new song, you know, Amazing. which for us. Yeah, that's and that to me, that that's the victory is that it's like we're all still here. We're all still able to do this. So there's no reason not to, because it was never about making money at it or having it be what what your career was necessarily. But we've all pursued, you know, Paul um, worked in a really cool computer music thing for years with his father and um, played in other bands. Ryland had ages working for Hans Zimmer on big film scores, raising kids, doing all kinds of, you know, electronic design and you know programming for companies. Steven had a career as a playwright and a screenwriter and now teaches at UCLA. I've worked for 25 years at a guitar shop in Santa Monica, El Trutone. That's like my bread and butter work thing, but it's related to, and I've met, you know, a litany of musicians in that job, which is kind of like, a, again, another childhood fantasy come true, whether it's Ry Cooter or Prince or Jackson Brown or whoever, it's like all these people that were or are customers of ours are all part of it too. And so it's kind of funny, you know, it's like, if you're open to things and you don't just go, oh, well, that was then we can't, you know, I can't go back to that. You know, you'll miss out on some stuff, you know, just by saying yes to doing a gig with somebody or saying, okay, let's do this or let's have that. It's like, you know, like I said, we played this gig like 10 years ago and Jackson Brown came 
to see my band because he knew me from the guitar shop. Oh, fantastic. Like, but but I think it's like there's a whole other connection where it's like it just it just is it could just be about that one thing. It's not like what does it mean or where will it lead? It's like it's not gonna lead to anywhere. It's gonna lead to, hey, thanks for coming out. See you later. <laughs> it's yes. like that's all it has to be. Yes. And you know, and probably Yes, and uh, and trouble probably trouble trying to sleep after the adrenaline excitement exactly. of it. Well, that's always the thing, you know. It's like that's the life of a musician is that it's like you kind of get all, you know, revved up to go and play, and you do it, and then you're like up for you know a while afterwards because you gotta wind down. Yes, I think going with something that you said a bit earlier about three minutes ago that I think that in the 80s and possibly I don't know what it's like now but it was very tribal. I don't think you could go from one scene to another without feeling like judas i think you you know there was like you were an indie kid or you were electronic kid or you were into yeah, i mean i i know i know about the, that that nature of certain scenes like that and i'm sure it may have been different in different cities as well you know there was a big thing here in la when you're talking about the punk time there were like the original punk rock la people who then looked at some of the later bands that came along that were like doing what we might call new wave music with like more clicky eighth note guitars and, you know, old suits and skinny ties and, you know, playing that kind of music. It's sort of like, oh, I don't want to, it's like, that's not cool to them. The end result is like, if you eliminate your, you know, preconceptions about that stuff. And and here's, a, here's another example. So when we're talking about music changing and all this other stuff floating about, it's like, I was... I mean, you know, and Stephen and I were not the only people like this, but it's like, you know, I remember he and I went to see Frankie Goes to Hollywood play out here in uh, in Los Angeles at the Palace uh, nightclub. And it was incredible. I loved that record. I, I bought every Frankie 12-inch and 7-inch single. I was really into any record that Trevor Horn produced. But at the same time, it's like I could appreciate I loved the replacements, you know, or I still loved the Beatles and the, all the 60s bands that I was into. And I still was into all kinds of other music. It's like you can appreciate things for what they are, not for whether it's better or worse than the thing you hold up as an ideal. You know, and I think that's the interesting thing about now is that maybe because so many people are consuming music just sort of off a platter that keeps spinning around. It's like it's a different thing. It's not like you're going to search out one particular thing. You know, I have a good friend, Andrew Sandoval, who's a reissue a record producer, archivist, and also works, um, you know, uh, with artists setting up tours and stuff, one of his passions is collecting obscure 60s singles by tons of different artists, not just American or British or European, but he has literally thousands and thousands of original 45s in his collection that he's gone through, scanned, digitized, you know, and like cataloged. A lot of this music not available any other place, never going to be reissued by one of the major labels, you know, never going to be anthologized, just sort of here's a band that cut three sides, you know. 50 years ago, put it out to the world and it, you know, went to 99 on the charts, you know, in Guam or whatever. That's it. It's over. Yes. So, you know, appreciating things for what they are, even if there's all it is, is just, hey, I'm going to play this and a hundred or a thousand people might listen to it on my internet radio show. Well, that's something, you know, there's a young singer songwriter that I met a few years ago and he came out to LA to make it, you know, and he's had a hard time and he's had series of day jobs and multiple setbacks and i just said if you can't not do it like if you can't walk away from this because you were driven to it then you know you're a lifer you're going to be a musician and a singer and a performer 
but you're going to have to find a way to make a living because this is not going to sustain you. It was always tough, but it's mm. harder now to monetize anything and to make it pay for itself. But if you write a song and record it and put it out on your website and 10 people or 100 people respond to it, well, that's an audience. You know, I have no idea going forward. Obviously, we can look at the historical examples of how things have changed and how the music business and everything is so different. But nothing's ever going to stop people wanting to pick up a guitar or a drum or a piano or something and have an idea and then find some way to you know share it or communicate it. I mean, obviously, the methodology is, has changed and the way that people consume stuff has totally changed. And, you know, I don't expect to ever make any money playing music. I never did. Yeah, you know, but I know that I know that when people were, look, that band that you mentioned that this guy has made a documentary about them from their brief moment. The last thing any of them probably would have thought was like, who would even know about us? Or it's like we barely made a blip then. But it was obviously the beginning of something. 4AD was a huge, you know, very influential record label. Yes, but it's like the fact that all these years later, somebody is taking the time to tell their story. I think that's fascinating. You know? It is. But, it is fascinating. We, yeah. you know, we love those stories. And the, the, yeah. almost the more obscure that that is is the better you know that's the thing that right. is... it's, just, it's that discovery it's like you want to know what makes things make things tick you know pat um pat thomas also you know does tons of anthologizing archiving and stuff and just digging through and finding out the stories sometimes like i said it's you know uh, i mean again also it's the strange interconnectedness of things like i mentioned my mom's high school friend martha velez who made records um i have actually i literally just got a copy of her uh she made um, two records, um, one called Friends and Angels, another one called Escape from Babylon. And so this is a friend of my mom's from high school who in the 70s made a record with everybody from Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce to Paul Kossoff, and then made another record a couple years later with Bob Marley and the Wailers, right? And I did not know anything about this woman until years later. But my friend Pat is working on this project, this research thing about um, Van Morrison, and he wanted to get in touch with Martha. And I go like, oh, it's funny, my mom grew up with like they grew up together he's like wow can she connect me with her so he ends up having this conversation online with martha last year about her time working with van morrison you know just specifically about just you know working together mm -hmm. and it's an interesting little bit of like just because if you are receptive to the how people come and go in each other's lives and how they interact and how they end up working together for a moment or not you know, again, another friend of my mom's from years ago is uh, a woman named Ruth Ann Friedman, who uh, wrote the song Windy. That was a big hit for the association. And Ruth Ann uh, got back into music about 15 years ago, thanks to uh, Devendra Banhart and some other people. And she asked if I would play bass with her because she, my mom mentioned that I was a musician. And so I did. And I ended up reconnecting Ruth Ann with Van Dyke Parks, who I knew, who she had not seen in years and Jackson Brown, who she had known many years ago as well. And we ended up finishing making her record in Jackson's studio with Van Dyke. This has nothing to do with the motion, but it's just- No, it, it, but it's, it's a- it, it, illustrates, it illustrates the story because that's that, that same gig where Jackson came to see us play is where Ruth Ann was there. And they were talking, she's like, oh, I need a place to record Van Dyke playing piano. He's like, let's call my studio manager. I'll set it up. She's like, really? It's like, yeah, old times. You know, so it's just us being in a band as kids and then reuniting as a band in our middle years 
just to me almost, almost makes perfect sense. I mean, I, it's a it's a special thing because you're never going to have anything like a lifetime connection, which is what we all have. You know, we've all been through so much together, you know, so many ups and downs and waves of just normal life existing. And the fact that we have this musical thing is great because a lot of people have a band when they're young and then everyone goes their separate ways, you know, and then it just turns into like some weird high school reunion where it's sort of like, oh my God, that guy, you know, that yes. was never a problem for us because we never stopped being friends with each other. Yes. I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. And I, you know, I, I, again, you doing something like this where you're chronicling, you know, you're telling the, helping people tell stories that you're interested in, you know, there's an audience for it as well. I think that that's really, you know, something. Yes, and for, well, you know, for us as a band, I mean, we now, nothing seems too ridiculous. It's sort of like, hey, we're, let's go play a gig here. Okay, cool. Let's do this. Or it's like, as long as it's something that we can all agree on and it's fun and we can fit it into our lives, then we want to do it. So, you know, next weekend, Paul's coming out here from Arizona, going to stay for a couple of days. We'll record, go out to dinner, crack each other up, tell stories, and then make a plan like, oh, we finish up the song. We'll put it out. Like, so let's go play a special show somewhere. Like we're working on trying to get a gig with another friend's band to play someplace cool again, like the Troubadour, and to kind of go back to like a big proper venue with a real stage and PA and everything just for fun. But, you know, I'm up to whatever. I get in the car and drive to Arizona and play some gigs there. Or just, you know, be open to whatever could happen because it's not over yet, you know. And as long as there's still something ahead of you, then you've got something to look forward to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just going slightly, just back again, because, you know, we talked about the the punk, the post-punk period, and then the, the year 83, which is a yeah. major moment, the Smiths appear, you know, for five years, right. from 83 yeah. to 87. Were, were the Smiths, did they come onto your radar? Did well, that in Los Angeles, yeah, in Los Angeles, they had a huge acceptance and popularity at the big local, I guess we call it the alternative radio station out here, K-Rock. Yes. really embraced them i mean like college radio did as well obviously but we all listened you know to that station out here and we all i mean i know steven and i did for sure and i'm pretty sure i know paul was a fan as well i would imagine rylan was too i went you know there was a, a great big uh indie record shop near where we all lived called aaron's and they would get all the english you know records in you know the same week or the next week so it's like it was like, oh, the new Smith single is out. It's like, oh, you got to hear the B-side. It's like, we they were a huge band. Still are, for me. I, I think those records are great. And it's funny, you know, um, again, one of the happy accidents for me, I've become friendly with Johnny Marr over the last decade. Uh, when he's in Los Angeles, he comes to our shop uh, in Santa Monica, and he's bought guitars and hung out. And I've met his son and his wife as well. He's a very nice guy. Yes. And he's you know, opened up a little bit and cracked a few jokes and told a few Smith stories, but just over after years of getting to know him a bit. But it's funny because those records still just take me back to that time. And I think that they really hold up, you know. And of course, you know, the Smiths are like frozen in time to some people because it's like, well, it's just this short period. And then, you know, certainly it's not like Morrissey didn't have a huge career. And I like quite a few of his records. I mean, not every one of them. But Johnny has done so much other music, but his solo thing has been, I mean, I've been a few times to see him live and it's great. And I think that it's funny, you know, the impact again, like they're also a band that was very polarizing for a lot of people, because if you weren't, or people I know were still like, oh, I love the music. I couldn't stand Morrissey. I couldn't take his voice or those lyrics. Everything's always like, oh, what was me? It's like, 
But, you know, if you're a teenager and you're going through awkward times and you're feeling isolated or alienated or alone, you can totally relate. And if you're in your 50s and you're just listening back to it, it's like, it's not like, oh, let me go back to those old days where I was thinking about, you know, how sad <laughs> I was. It's just, but that music, there's something about it that I think is very special and personal. And that's the thing, that era, you know, there was a lot of uh, emphasis for some people on making these big, explosive, booming, you know, overwhelming records. And everybody was sort of doing that at a certain point because that's what the radio was playing and everybody wanted to get the attention. But at the core, a lot of that music is just something that you can see people just sitting working on in their little, you know, studio garage, just getting it together. It's like, yes, it turned into this big thing, but a lot of those huge 80s albums, you know, records that were even much bigger than the Smiths were, there's something very still human and personal at the core of it. It's just what it's dressed up in something else because people wanted to have hits and sell records. And that's what was going on, you know? Yes. Well, I think you had that kind of bombastic kind of Trevor Horn production that came out right. and then you had... <laughs> And, and then and you had, and then you had born, born to, um, born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, and then you had right. the Bon Jovi, and then it just right. got everything big. was like everything was this big event, like everything is like Jesus Christ, that snare drum is louder than the vocal, or it's like everything sounds like a cannon exploding, and I guess you know people were just trying to like be heard and get the attention. And it's funny because everybody fell into that, and then it wasn't always obviously the best approach. You know, it's not like every every one of those records worked as well as it could have and some people especially some older artists back then probably just fell prey to the label guy and everybody saying it's like you need to work with this person we need to get you something like this to make you relevant to these people which you know some people had success with that and some people probably wish they'd not taken that advice but but that, that that's kind of interesting because i thought about that that very subject because i think sometimes a, an artist who has a success in one decade and they have that five year and they're on the zeitgeist and then there's a little bit of a moment and then they have the next decade and the scene has changed. Those, those people like David Bowie, people like Rod Stewart, I mean, there's quite a few, aren't there? Robert Plant. Yeah. I mean, their solo works during that period are a little bit like, oh, and I think they then realise that as well. And then they get it a bit back together in the 90s or they certainly think I must I must stop doing what I was doing because I got led down that commercial path that wasn't going to quite work so bowie bowie had some of his albums kind of remixed or remastered without that 80s production and it's like oh yeah these songs are much better now and i i I totally understand that and i mean the remake or redo of never let me down again which you know was a record that certainly could have benefited from a more sympathetic more restrained type of production and engineering they you know i guess he requested that you know, as part of his plan of what to do with that stuff when I'm gone. That was something that he wanted to see happen. And so he did. On the other hand, you know, it's not everyone's favorite, but I really love that record tonight, which is the one that followed up Let's Dance, even though some people did not um, embrace it, to say the least. <laughs> but I I think it's actually really cool. And again, it was like another example of him. It's like, I'm going to cut a few more Iggy Pop songs and get my friend some money. And I'm going to get Tina Turner on a record with me. It's like, he had an agenda, you know, I think. And but a lot of artists then, you know, and we observed all this stuff as we were, you know, making our music and, of course, trying to relate to it. It's like I understand that people were sort of like, this is what's happening. It's like, I want to be in this. Like, I want to do it. I, you know, I read an interview not too long ago with Niall Rogers talking about 
know, David Bowie came to him to make what became Let's Dance, sort of like, I like what you do, like, let's do it, let's do it. Like, let's make this a thing. And they made a big hit record and it really turned things around for him. I mean, he was playing huge venues and making money again. And, you know, he'd been through the ringer, I guess, financially and emotionally through his previous record deal and management situation. So the fact that he had a big success, maybe not exactly something he was looking forward to do more of, but it certainly allowed him to do things that might not have been yeah. as possible. Because I, know, think, cause I think like, that 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 thing about the record deal and uh, record company and the you know Tony DeFreeze and the, also his marriage, I think there's all those things on top of it. Plus, he'd had those three years in Berlin, making sort of you know great albums, but going through an awful lot of addiction problems as well. So I can understand why he needed to change. Otherwise, it was going to be more of the same, but probably messy so i think you know i can understand why he would have done that like i can understand why he did tin machine because i think he just needed another change and actually that was definitely what he needed at that time yeah well i mean um i think that you know every artist goes through periods where they're doing something because there's there's there could be a variety of reasons and you know um to a greater or lesser degree, sometimes people have choices that they make that they regret. But I don't know if I don't know of anybody who, like, you know, and I'm not I'm I'm more like a fan here, looking at back at things that I experienced in real time. You know, um, I remember being very excited about anything new from anybody that I was a fan of, just because I was so excited that they were still making music. You know. Yes. Of course, you look back at certain things and you're like, wow, there's a record I'll never listen to again. Yet I still have. <laughs> or I bought the deluxe edition with two extra songs and a poster because I couldn't help myself. But yeah, I mean, you still are always going to have the stuff that you really touch, you know, with, you know, that you go back and touch base with because it's what, you know, meant the most to you. But I, you know, I'm still, you know, always delighted to discover something that I read about, but never actually took the time to listen to. Like, now I want to go look for that band, you know, on 4AD and, you know, find out about them. You know, but it's the same thing. It's like I bought a record by, you know, a band from the 60s yesterday that I, you know, I'd heard about, but never listened to called The Blues Project. That was, again, like, you know, it's not going to change my world at this point in my life, but it's cool to hear something from a time where everybody was making new music and it's like there were some guys doing their version of something that they were interested in yeah. i just discovery part of it to me is what's always interesting and i know that there were you know a bunch of bands like say in the wake of the smiths that all tried to like get something like that going but they didn't maybe have that magic you know they didn't have a johnny marr coming up with that music and they didn't have morrissey delivering that lyric and that melody you know so it's like that was a great combination as were Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce of course it was like a band of people all pulling together at least for a few years in the same direction to make something happen yes. and 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 whether or not you know something something being rediscovered years later like on a very very tiny level say my band if somebody comes to it cold and likes it for what it is and has no preconception or no relation to it, just like, wow, this is cool. Like I would have gone to see this back then, you know, then to me, it's like, well, that's a, that's a victory, you know? And, and it's, it's, it's about nothing else other than the fact that, you know, people make music 
for a variety of reasons. But I think at the core of it, people make music because they have something they want to express or communicate. And if other people pick up on that and they enjoy it, then that's great on whatever level. You know. Yes, absolutely. No, but I, I, you know, just on that thing of archiving, there's, you know, Cherry Red Records in the UK. I mean, and I don't know, you know, what they're like in the rest of the world, but they're always bringing out all these compilations and they've obviously done a lot of the 60s. They seem to always have things there, the 60s, 70s, but they're really going through the 80s stuff now. And they did the C86, and then they went up to C91. Now they're going back to C85, you know, triple CD box sets, which have got, you know, the most obscure songs and flexi discs and, you know, people, you know, never been able to hear before. And he, they put those compilations out and then they did one, a seven CD box set on Manchester from a sort of a small period of time. And then they did a five CD box set on, you know, Liverpool from a small period of time and then Sheffield and, you know, and people are archive. And then there's another guy who's just started a record label called the Precious Recordings of London, who's putting out John Peel and Janice Long sessions from the late 80s and early 90s. And then there's a, a guy in America called Cloudbury who puts out these obscure indie bands from the 80s that he discovers. And then another person in Germany doing fire station records and he's finding bands. So people are just enjoying thinking, oh, look, this band have done a few singles. I'll put a compilation together 30 years later. And suddenly, bingo, you know, someone, that band is suddenly like, my God, someone wants to put our music out. This is fantastic. So I think it's all very valid because they like, there is kind of genius in a lot of those songs. That's my theory. And I think in the context of like, when you look at what else was going on, you see it. It's like I said, you know, for all the stuff that we were into and all of our influences, I don't know that you'd hear, you wouldn't hear necessarily hear some of that in the music we were making or recording, but we were certainly absorbing it all and listening to it. But it's like, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you are, I'm amazed sometimes when I find out that so and so is a fan of somebody, because I wouldn't think that they'd find any common ground musically, but they are, you know, or somebody's sort of like, oh yeah, that's my favorite guitar player. You know, I, again, um, uh, you know, my friend, um, my friend Brian, uh, who remixed our um, our demo, has worked for 22 years for The Who. And uh, he's told me repeatedly of, you know, uh, Pete Townsend was like a huge Eddie Van Halen fan. And would just watch videos of Eddie Van Halen, like playing guitar. And he said, it's not that you necessarily hear any of it in him. Really, it's just sort of like he was fascinated by somebody who, somebody else doing their music, you know. I mean, yeah, they both play rock and roll guitar, very differently styled, but... I think there's always a way for people to appreciate something, you know, whether it's in real time, whether it's years later. And like you said, I mean, here's people starting up, you know, at the record company saying like, we're going to make a three CD set of this, you know, scene from this town, you know, and look, I have, you know, I have two like five CD box sets on the, on the sound, you know, the uh, Adrian Borland's band, you know, oh, yes. and, uh, Jesus, I'm, I managed to track down quite a few of the members of that band, actually. And before them, they were the Crazies. If you ever get a chance, there's a band called the Crazies. I don't know about that one, but there's another thing called the Outsiders. Yeah. Was that Adrian's band before? Yeah, and the Crazies. You should definitely check out the Crazies. I'll be looking for that. But see, again, it's like I'm still, and of course, I'm still addicted to physical product. I mean, I've got like 8,000 CDs in this house. You know, it's ridiculous, but it's like I like having it to look at and touch and read the booklet and you know whatnot that's what i do so again that was actually a pull for us to make this little ep you know we made it we did make a physical version of it as well with an old photo of us and people were sort of fascinated like i love this picture of you guys i don't know what i would play this disc on because i don't have a cd player anymore but 
it online? It's like, yes, you can get it online. <laughs> yes. So does that mean you like things like the Comsat Angels, the Bolshoi, um, Sad Lovers and Giants, and all those bands as well? Don't know. I do know the Comsat Angels records. I have all of those. Um, and uh, I was into them. My friend, um, my friend had a band that was a bit like them uh, at, sort of at the time. So he introduced me to them and also to the sound. Yes. Um, that's how I knew about that. And um, but again, it's like I'm always, uh, you know, rediscovering stuff, too. So, you know, I'll probably go and check out some other stuff after this chat. Yes. Well, listen to the Bolshoi with Trevor Tanner and Paul Clark, because, um, yes, they've yeah, it they, that'll blow your mind when you hear them. You'll just go, oh, my God. And also Sad Lovers and Giants will and the Chameleons and all those bands. You need to listen to them all. <laughs> but i'll certainly be i'll certainly be checking it out yes i'll send you a link as well to the trailer to this film as well and you'll go blimey that's incredible so um i'm, uh, I'm... sorry <laughs> so look just last question if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out what would you if there was something that you could just go oh yeah that would have been quite handy is there anything in particular uh keep doing what you're doing and press up you know press up something tangible i it's a it's a tiny regret but i do wish we'd made a piece of vinyl or a cassette at least to like have a bit of firmware in the ether to say like this existed yes. you know like run off like a hundred singles or made a box of cassettes or something just to have a little totem you know a little token of that time but i mean in a sense we do because we still have the music so we can present it now you know all these years later and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to David Jenkins for giving me the time for that interview. I will, in the notes below, give you a link to their um, account on Spotify, Apple Music, Facebook, and all the other usual social media platform sites. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Um, yes, keep it Keep it positive and groovy. And also, all these interviews have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.